For our text this morning, we'll look at just three verses. The book of Acts, chapter 4. We'll look at verses 18 through 20. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. This, of course, was one of many accounts in God's word where Christ's disciples had been hauled before the judges and the council and had been commanded not to preach or to teach or to testify in Christ's name. But we want to pay particular attention to their response. These were law-abiding citizens. They weren't troublemakers or rebel-rousers. They were doing everything they could to abide by the laws of the land. But when it came to being silenced regarding their testimony in Christ, I like their response. They said, we're going to obey God rather than man. In verse 20, it says, they, they said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You know, as Christians, those who've been born again, those whose lives have been transformed, we are compelled by God's Word to testify and speak of those things which we've seen and heard through our lives and through our words and our actions. We are to be living testimonies of Christ's power. It says we're to be living epistles seen and read of all men. The Word of God instructs us, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And of course, we have Christ's great commission to his disciples. He said, go ye into all the world and preach, meaning testify and teach and speak of the things of God, making disciples of all nations. So as Christians, we have a duty and an obligation and a privilege really to share our testimony Years ago, I saw a slogan on a poster in a Sunday school room, and it's always stayed with me. It said, if the world accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to prove it? Think about that. If the world accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to prove it? You know, we've all been accused, I'm sure, at times of things in our own lives. Maybe there were times when we were guilty, and other times maybe when we were innocent. Nobody likes to be falsely accused. And when this happens, we spend a lot of time trying to prove our innocence. Several years ago, my mom and dad lived in Southern California. This was when they were first married. I think before even any of us kids were born. And my dad had a Honda motorcycle. The weather is very good in Southern California, so it's more practical to have a motorcycle in California. One day it was a very nice day, so he decided he was going to go for a little motorcycle ride. And he got on his motorcycle and decided to go right over to Beverly Hills. And he was going to ride around Beverly Hills for a while. When he got there, he was quickly pulled over by a couple police officers. And they told him to park his motorcycle and get in the car because they were going to take him down to the station. They had some questions for him. And, of course, he thought, what in the world is going on? He was compliant. 
got in the car. Of course, they weren't telling him why they were taking him down to the police station. Once they got there, they took him into this little room and they began to interrogate him. And they accused him of pulling off a whole string of robberies that had taken place in that area. They were some very fancy retirement homes that had been recently robbed. And the man who did the robberies was driving a Honda motorcycle. They even said they referred to him as the Honda Bandit. And they kept interrogating my dad. Of course, he pled his innocence. He knew he hadn't done it. Well, they weren't convinced. So they said, well, we're going to put you back in the car and we're going to go and we're going to go to some of these rest homes and we're going to ask some of the residents to be an eyewitness to identify you. Well, now he was really nervous. Um, no elderly people sometimes don't have the clearest memories. And so he was thinking, I hope they don't mistake me for somebody else. Fortunately, they got there. They called a few of the residents out and every one of them said the same thing. You got the wrong guy. He doesn't even look like the one that did these robberies. Well, they took him back to the station and they began to question him some more. And finally, after hours of this, they realized they didn't have enough evidence to keep him, so they had to let him go. There wasn't enough evidence to make the charges stick. He said they were so convincing for a minute, he thought, maybe I did do these crimes. But he knew he hadn't, and he pled his innocence, so they had to let him go because there wasn't enough evidence. Well, we would have done the same, I'm sure, you know, but there's not too many times when we try to establish our guilt. But if the world accused us of being a Christian, God help us to say guilty is charged. And we would hope and pray that there would be enough evidence to make those charges stick. You know, I was thinking about our testimony. There's some things that will help our testimony stand up under scrutiny. That's what we want when we're accused of being Christians. I thought four things that really make our testimony, our Christian testimony credible. We'll look at these things this morning. It must be personal. We have to remember that our testimony is powerful. It has to be consistent and it must be current or up to date. We must have a personal testimony. We have to be able to give an accurate, truthful account of what the Lord has done for us. You know, when we're called to the witness stand, we're not called to give somebody else's testimony. We're not called, certainly, to give an account of something that didn't happen. So we must have a personal testimony. First Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Again, we must have a personal experience with Christ in order to have a personal testimony. Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what He has done for my soul. So again, we see a personal account of the psalmist declaring what the Lord did for his soul. You know, no one can give your heart to Jesus for you. No one can repent of your sins for you. You have to do that yourself. It must be personal, something you must do personally. You must personally experience that life-changing, transforming power of Christ in your own life. Jesus told Nicodemus, 
there in the book of John, it says you must be born again. You must be born again. If you want to enter into, no one can enter into the kingdom of heaven except ye be born again. You know, you can't depend upon or try to live off somebody else's testimony. You're not going to get to heaven based on somebody else's testimony. You're going to get there by having a testimony of your own. So our testimonies must be personal. Romans 14.12 says, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. The good news is, if you don't have a personal testimony this morning, you can. You can have a testimony of victory, one honest prayer, one heart of repentance, one uh, cry to the Lord, and one uh, moment of surrender. The Lord can give you a personal testimony. Our testimonies are powerful. We don't ever want to fail to recognize that fact. You know, a personal testimony is the most persuasive form of communication. If it wasn't, advertisers would never use it, but they use it all the time. And many of you have ever bought a product based on the testimonial of somebody else? We see the commercials all the time, and sometimes there'll be a little disclaimer saying, this isn't a paid actor, but an actual customer. You know, my wife and I, several years ago, I think it was 2016, we decided to buy a new car. So we went down to the Jeep dealership. We'd been looking at Jeeps. We were looking at a little bit bigger model. And we noticed the Renegade. And it was a, we thought it was a really nice looking car. I don't want to say it was cute, but anyway, some people might consider it a cute car. But it just seemed really small. But I remember as we were there at the dealership, I think it was on a Saturday, I happened to look over and I saw this guy getting out of a Jeep Renegade. He just test drove it. He was big. Not just tall, but he was wide. He was very big. And I heard him make the comment. He says, these things are roomier than I thought. Well, I was sold. <laughs> we ended up buying the Jeep Renegade. I told my wife later, I wondered if he was a plant. I wonder if they put him there on the lot to sell renegades because it is small, actually. It is. so. But we were persuaded by the testimony of somebody else. Well, of course, as Christians, we're not selling a product, but we are trying to convince a dying world that there is hope, there's a way out of their sin and their heartache and their despair. In John 4.39, it says... And many of the Samaritans believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all that ever I did. That account where Jesus met that woman at the well. And he began to talk to her about her life. And he offered her that living water. And as a result, she went back and told all of the people in her town, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. This must be the Christ. So based on her testimony, they went out and they heard the words of Christ for themselves. There was a great revival in that town. Many were saved as a, as a result of a personal testimony. <clears throat> you know, it's a powerful tool against the enemy of our souls. Probably the most powerful tool. Revelation 12, verse 11 it says, and they overcame him, speaking of Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Every time you stand to your feet and give an account of what Christ has done for you, you win a victory over the devil. 
And not only do you encourage those others around that here, but you encourage your own soul. It's a powerful tool. That's how we overcome the enemy, by our testimony. You know, it's powerful enough that the Lord Himself takes note of it. Malachi 3, verse 16, it says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before Him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon His name. The Lord takes note every time we share our testimony. And you know, our testimony is powerful enough to stop the mouths of the fiercest critics. In Acts chapter 4, we read the account where Peter and John, the previous chapter, they went up to the temple to pray. And they met a lame man. They delivered that man in the name of Christ. And of course, that stirred up some controversy. And so they were being challenged by the religious leaders and the scoffers. But listen to what Peter said. He said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men, yet it says they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And it says, And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. There's something powerful about a personal testimony. Several years ago, my wife and I were down in the L.A. area. We went to visit one of the beaches there, and we were just minding our own business, enjoying the sand and the surf. And as we were standing there, an older couple approached us, and the man struck up a conversation. I didn't think anything of it. I thought he was just probably being friendly. But I realized right away this man had an agenda. He was a crusader. And he began to espouse all of his ideas and his philosophies and his political views. And I realized very quickly I wouldn't agree with anything this man had to say. He was speaking from a secular worldview, and he was zealous. And I would tell him, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. I, I, I truly was trying to do my best to just be polite but he wouldn't listen. He just kept going on and on and on. And he went on to tell me that if I didn't think the way he thought, if I didn't vote the way he thinks I should vote, and if I didn't subscribe to all of his philosophies and ideas, that I didn't care about my kids. And I didn't care about my grandkids or the future of our country. Then he went on to tell me all of the reason why the, the world had so many problems. And he said, if we could just have enough welfare programs and social programs, somehow we could ease the plight of all the suffering, and then it would be a better place. I'd had enough by this point. And when he stopped to take a breath, I thought it's now or never. So I told him, I, I can't agree with anything you said, and I certainly don't agree with your assessment of the world's problems. And he realized I took a biblical worldview. I said, you know, the problems aren't bad policies and bad politics or even bad people. The problem is sin. I told him in the beginning, God created the first man and the first woman, gave him one commandment. And because of rebellion and disobedience, they disobeyed God. And as a result, the world was plunged into sin. And all the heartache and suffering you see is because of sin. 
If mankind had only obeyed God in the first place, and if man would turn back to God now, I said, you know, the world would be a much different place. Well, he looked at me like I was crazy, and I thought that surely would end the argument. I wasn't arguing, he was, but anyway, it didn't stop. And I remember what he told me next. He says, the only reason you believe that is because you've been indoctrinated. Well, I told him it's true. I've been to church my whole life. I was born and raised in a Christian home. Taught about heaven and hell. Taught about God's plan of salvation. But I said, that didn't do me any good until one day. I was so thankful I could point him back to a specific time and place. And I said, at 14 years of age, I knelt by my bed and I cried out to the Lord. I surrendered to Christ. And he came in and he cleaned me up. He took out the filthy mouth and the lying tongue and all the cheating and everything else. And he made me a brand new creature. Silence. I was amazed. He didn't have anything to say. But I was on a roll, so I wasn't going to stop. So I told him, the best news is Jesus can do the same thing for you and your wife. The Lord could change you today. The Lord could give you the hope of heaven. Well, his wife began to pull him by the arm and said, okay, I don't think we can do anything here. And so they left. But I'm thankful I had a personal testimony, a place I could point back to and say, this is what Jesus did for me. People can argue about all kinds of things. They can debate the Word of God. They can argue about all kinds of different things, theology. They cannot, cannot dispute a personal testimony. It's powerful, and we need to remember that. It was an indoctrination. It was salvation through revelation. I told him, Jesus bore witness with my spirit that day that I had been saved. Our testimonies must be consistent. That word consistent means unchanging, steady, always the same. You know, as Christians, we serve a steady, consistent, unchanging God. The Bible tells us He's the same yesterday Today and forever, His power to help and to deliver isn't limited by circumstances or anything else. You know, if the Lord is steady and consistent and unchanging, that means His promises are also the same. And that would tell me that our faith and our confidence in the Lord must also be the same. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We must be consistent. Is your testimony the same on Monday morning when you're at work as it is on Sunday morning when you're sitting in church? One man once said the problem with so many professing Christians is they come to church and they sing onward Christian soldiers on Sunday and they end up going AWOL on Monday. But that shouldn't be the case. We should be the same whether we're in church, at work, in the home, in the classroom. Our testimony should be consistent. I'll share a little poem I found a few years ago. It says, I'd rather see a sermon preached than hear one any day. I'd rather someone walk with me than merely point the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example is always clear. I can learn to do it if you'll let me see it done. Your hand I see in action, your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very well and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. 
For I might understand you, the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Our testimony must be consistent. But you know, consistency leads to credibility. When I think about examples in the Word of God, I think about Daniel. Talk about a consistent, steady example we read in Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. I'm excuse me, Daniel chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. It says, Then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Of course, Daniel had been promoted in the land. It said he had an excellent spirit. There were others in the kingdom that were jealous, so they thought of a way to overthrow Daniel, but they realized there's nothing we can do. He's perfect in every way. So they hatched a plan, and they decided to get the king to sign this decree that if anyone asked anything of any god or man except for the king for 30 days, that they would be thrown into the den of lions. Well, you know, Daniel's life was so consistent, they could predict his response ahead of time. In verse 10, it says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went to his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Consistency. Of course, we know their whole plan backfired him because Daniel chose to put his faith and his confidence in God. He chose to do what he was always doing in the first place. God brought a great deliverance, shut the mouths of those lions and those men that had hatched his plan. They were thrown into that very lion's den that they had intended for Daniel. God delivered. God will deliver. But Daniel was unwavering and uncompromising and consistent In his testimony, it goes on to say that Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Outlived two different kings, but he was consistently serving the Lord every day. You know, the world isn't looking for something that only lasts or only works during times of ease and comfort. They want something better than that. Psalm 106.3 says, Blessed are they that keep judgment in he that doeth righteousness at all times. And finally, our testimony must be current and up to date. You know, in Revelation, we read a message to all of the churches there. Christ sent a message to each of the churches. And in the second chapter, we read about one particular message that he had for the church there in Ephesus. And he began by, of course, commending them. He, there were a lot of things this church was doing right. He said he knew their labor. They were a hardworking industrious church, said he knew their patience. They were enduring persecution and difficulties. They weren't tolerant of evildoers. That's good. And they even exposed and removed some of the false teachers that had come into the church there. And they were holding up the truth. They were sound in doctrine. But then he offers a rebuke. He said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left Thy first love. 
See, somewhere along the line, they left their love and their zeal for the Lord and their fervor for the Lord. They'd grown cold and indifferent. Their testimony wasn't what it once was. Maybe they had neglected to read and pray. We don't know. Excuse me. We don't know. Maybe the cares of life begin to choke out that love for the Lord, but they found themselves in a very precarious place. And then Jesus gave them a warning. He says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Maybe your testimony isn't what it once was. Maybe it isn't what it should be, or maybe it's completely gone. You know, the good news is you don't have to remain in that condition. Christ offers a remedy. Just like He told the church there, He says, repent. If you have to do your first works over again, get back to what you were doing in the first place. The Lord can give you a powerful personal testimony, a testimony of victory, even this morning. We know the Lord is coming, and He's coming very quickly, just like He told them there, I'll come quickly, and I'll take your place out of the kingdom unless you repent. Good news is there's hope. If anyone here needs to repent, the Lord can help you to do that today. Tells us in Timothy, Second Timothy, it says that the Lord is coming for those that love His appearing. Tells us, He's coming for those who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. He's coming for those who have a victorious Christian testimony. In closing again, we'll consider the example of Enoch. We heard about him in our Scripture reading. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Enoch. It does tell us in Jude 14, he was the seventh from Adam. He was the father of Methuselah, which was the oldest man to ever live. It said he prophesied of the Lord's return. He was a preacher of righteousness. We also know he was only one of two men who didn't taste death. It says that he was translated or taken, caught up before he ever died. This, of course, is a prototype of the rapture. It also tells us he began walking with God at 65 years of age. So Enoch had established a personal testimony with the Lord. It said he walked with God for 300 years after that time. So we see consistency in Enoch's life. And at 365 years of age, it says that God took him. You know, the key to it all we find is in Hebrews 11.5. It says before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. If we ever hope to see God whether it's by way of the grave or way of the rapture, we have to have that same testimony. We have to have a testimony that we pleased God. The good news is you can have a testimony just like that. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who walked with Enoch for over 300 years is the same God that will walk with you today. He'll give you victory every day. And when that day comes, that old trumpet sounds, We can have a testimony that's current and up to date, and we can be a part of that bride of Christ. If you need something from the Lord this morning, just come and seek Him today. The song is 566. These altars are open.